Um, the language is such, and again, I'm kind of loath to interpret language because that's kind of subjective, but it does seem that they're looking at larger landlords, not necessarily even corporations, even individuals who own significant amounts of rental properties. Um, and they're basically kind of warning people, say like, you know, do good kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like if we catch you doing excessive rent evictions, that sort of stuff, you know, we're gonna turn our eye on you when you don't want that. It feels a bit like a warning shot in that respect. You're listening to the Ottawa Real Estate Podcast with your hosts, Paul Stevenson, David Warren, and Greg Campbell. Let's see what's going on in the world of real estate today. Hello, welcome to the Ottawa Real Estate Podcast, where industry experts, myself, Paul Stevenson, Greg Campbell, and David Warren, bring you insights and analysis on the local real estate market. From trends and developments to tips for buying, selling, and investing in Ottawa properties, this podcast covers everything you need to know to navigate the dynamic real estate landscape in the nation's capital. Join us as we dive into the latest news, share our expertise, and explore what makes Ottawa such a unique and exciting place to buy and sell real estate. Amazing. Hello, gentlemen. Totally amazing. Every week, oh. I'm just going to refresh it, just generate new response, and we'll just see what, uh, see what it spits out. See what it's learning about the Ottawa real estate market. Yeah, exactly. How's it going, guys? How was the weekend? It was good. Greg, you. Yeah. No, 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 I'm okay. I'm just, yeah. Go ahead, David. You first. No, I was going to say that, that response looked like you, uh, went you just to got war bumped to the front of the line. Just Greg. came out the other. <laughs> it, was, it was just one of those things, you know, I had, I was sick most of the week, which was brutal. I got sick on Tuesday night and I was at home until Saturday when I started feeling better. And then, um, ironically, that was the same night that I was invited to go to the Sens game. Mm. Great game. Well, not a great game for the Sens, but good game to be at. It was it was a good game to be at. It was uh, there was a lot of people. Um, I hadn't been <laughs> out to a game in a while. the The whole night was pretty uh, was it was interesting for me. I just I I you know the Toronto players. I kept saying I'm like the Toronto team seemed to have a lot more finesse than the Ottawa team. There were more finesse, you know, slicker moves. Cool. I mean, they're. I would hope so. They've got a salary. They got a team that's about double the uh, the salary cap of Ottawa. And that's what <laughs> that's what my friend Phil was saying to me because, like, I don't I don't really follow hook hockey. I haven't watched yeah. a lot of it recently. But I was like, you know, I've I know the sport. I played the sport when I was younger, and um, it was just interesting to me watching. I was like, wow. I'm like, these guys are like really slick, way better team. <laughs> and then he was telling me that he goes, Ottawa's going to be that team. Yeah, if these guys keep working together because they're all really good, they're just young and they're uh, they're just getting started. So, makes sense. That's great. Phil would be a good guy to ask. We'll have to bring Phil on just to talk about the Sens next season. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about you, Dave? How was the weekend? Uh, it was good. No, uh, yeah, nothing really. Uh, nothing really much, to be honest. I'm trying to think uh, what the heck I even did other See? than watch the uh, other than watch. Jay, uh, Jay's home opener on Thursday, or Jay's opener, I should say, on Thursday, and then uh, the weekend. You know, not a great series to start the season, but uh, there's still uh, still plenty more games where that came from. So, oh, yeah, lots more games <laughs> to lose and win. <laughs> Only 465 more to go this season. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We did uh, my son's 12th birthday was last week, so we did a uh, family get together on Saturday, which was always a full house. And, um, and then Sunday we did a, uh, 
indoor soccer slash laser tag with his school friends, which was pretty epic. Laser tag. Oh, yeah. And parents amazing. joined in, which was amazing. amazing. That That's was like great. a big 12-year-old. Over on Saint No, we actually went to a place called Stinger's. Anyone who's uh, knows the Brockville area it was actually out in Brockville. Laser tag. I haven't done that since I was a child. It was really fun. When it was invented. We should have a toe rep laser quest event. <laughs> That'd be amazing. <laughs> and then go for drinks. Just all of our listeners and us shooting lasers at each other. I would, I would love it. Laser tag. Yeah. Oh, speaking of lasers, gentlemen, let's get into our laser focus since it's Monday. Um. <laughs> So April 1st, great transition. uh, (laughs) April 1st, we were supposed to get our new uh, first home savings account, which is very similar to the uh, TFSA, Uh, but it's delayed. Gentlemen, it ain't happening. It ain't launched. So I'll just give you a quick excerpt here from uh, Canadian Mortgage Trend CMT. It says, prospective home buyers wanting to take advantage of the federal government's new TFSA or Oh, yeah. Wow. They actually made a mistake um, of the federal's new tax-free savings account. We'll have to wait longer despite the program's official launch date, April 1st. They actually made a typo here. Uh, they meant to say uh, home, first, first home savings account. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of the big six banks confirmed to CMT that they won't be in a position to offer the new account to clients until later this year. The new registered plan allows first-time home buyers to save up to 40000 for the down payment on their home on a tax-free basis. Similar to the tax-free savings account, funds in the account can be placed in a variety of investment vehicles and then can be withdrawn tax-free as long as the funds are used for a qualifying first-home purchase. The account was announced in federal budget 2022 and was promoted as being available to first-time home buyers starting April 1st. Um, it says, however, the country's largest banks say they are still working to mm-hmm. finalize the logistics of offering the account. Uh, they haven't had much Oops. time. And uh, including obtaining the required government authorizations and awaiting tax reporting guidelines from the CRA. It's expected not, to be I don't think it's really high on their list it's not really high on their list of priorities i don't think of uh things that they got that the government just threw on the banks i don't think the banks uh, really prioritize it but when it does come available it would it will be a good uh program i know we spoke about it when it's originally launched last budget um it will be a good program for first-time home buyers in conjunction with the rsp program so just hmm. as Paul mentioned you can save up to $40,000 or $8,000 a year um, that those funds can actually be carried forward. So if you don't top up that 8,000 in a given year, the unused portion can be carried forward. So being eligible from 18 on, it's actually, you know, really does allow you within, you know, really if you open the account at 18 by 23 years old, you can, you know, have that ability to, to put away 40,000 instead of just 8,000 a year. Um, I can't wait for that first. I can't wait for that first time home buyer who just puts that 8000 into some penny stock and it just skyrockets. Hey, they got buying their house cash. Hey, <laughs> I made 800 grand. I remember uh, in a past life working at uh, TD Waterhouse, uh, I was uh, working there on the phones and basically giving people quotes and so on. And this one guy used to call in every single day asking about this stock called the uh, GCR's Golden Chalice Resources. I'll never forget it. It was like Chalice. a... Like a yeah, it was like a myth, a myth in the office. This guy calls in, not to me, it's to one of my like pod mates. And uh, he's like, uh, oh, I need a quote for uh, GCR. And my colleague is like, oh, I closed it, you know, $4.50. He's like, no, 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 GCR, Golden Chalice Resource. He's like, yeah, that that's the right one. It was up 4,000% today or some like, like it just exploded one day and the guy mm-hmm. had no idea. He's like, oh my God, I think I have 
10,000 shares of that. And my <laughs> colleague's like, no, wow. you actually have 100,000 shares. Like the wow. guy like was literally retiring after that phone call. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Yeah, imagine. Good so news. someone will do that. Guy. Someone got, will do that. He got the golden chalice. He got the golden chalice. He got the golden chalice. That's yes. crazy. And he didn't melt to dust like Indiana Jones, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah, so he someone that will happen with someone in this in this first home savings oh. account. Someone's gonna throw in some money and well, even if you look at when the cannabis companies came out, their stocks just skyrocketed. People are making a fortune. You know, there's always gonna be companies and industries that blow up. So you're just gonna get that that 23 year old with a forty thousand dollar limit just start dumping it into like some obscurity, some yeah. obscure uh, stock and just. Look to hit the lottery. It's gonna be hilarious. Um, if I remember correctly, I want to say it was my colleague Chris that took that call. Chris Chamberlain, if you're listening, shout out to Chris Chamberlain. Um, so, Greg, what have you seen in the market? I, I know uh, Dave and I both have been seeing a lot of like way more offers coming in, way more activity happening, a lot more listings. Every time I see a home come up, it seems to sell in days. I don't know if that's just me. Yeah, there's but... there's a lot happening, man. There's new properties coming out every day. It's it's a mixed bag as usual. I mean, you know, there's some there's one neighborhood I've got an eye on because I've got a listing coming out right now, and it um, there's a couple on there that should have just been sold immediately at the price point. They're like condo towns in the low fours. Um, but they're sitting there and I don't know what they're waiting for. I was actually hoping that two of them would have been sold before we listed ours and they're not. So, uh, we're just kind of trying to plan strategically around that. I guess some people are just maybe waiting to see if there's more at that price point in that neighborhood. I don't know, but overall, uh, lots of good stuff out there. Um, you know, again, as usual, the nice ones are coming out and they're going quick. Uh, some in multiples, some not some over list, some atlas, some under list conditions no conditions just a mixed bag there was a couple that got done this week with um with me and my guys uh luca did one on uh excuse me he did one on um uh earlier in the week and it was a perfect bungalow for for a duplex um you know listed at 550 when infirm uh got it done at uh, 520 that one had no conditions also, you know, and, and there was no competition. It was just because, uh, you know, the buyer knew what they were doing. Like they were, they're planning on going in doing a renovation, living there and then renting out one of the units. Um, other than that, been doing lots of rental activity, rentals just through the roof, multiples and rentals. Uh, we had a client that lost wow. one in a multiple rental situation because they had a pet. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm currently in a multiple scenario, multiple offer scenario for a rental. There's two applications in. Uh, we'll see if see if we get it or not. Uh, something that everyone should be aware of: if you do have a pet, make sure you have a strong pet clause. If any agent out there wants uh, a pet clause, I've got a pretty bulletproof one, and it's good for both the seller and the the tenant. If you're coming in as a tenant and you have a pet, and you really want to let the landlord know that uh, they have nothing to worry about, this clause is like it's just fire. Like there's no way that they wouldn't sign off on it because it protects them completely. Um, so that's something, if anyone wants that, let me know, I'll send it off. Uh, I do have a quick story here. I do have a quick story here. Storytelling this time. Is, this is a very interesting scenario. And most people, I had never seen this before. And I've been doing this a long time. I have never seen this. And nor had most of the people that I work with had ever seen anything like this. Um, there was a property listed way, way undervalued. Like it would this be- was the, this the is type it. that would create 
a very strong multiple offer scenario. Let's say 150,000 under, under estimated value. What they did instead of holding offers, they had a 24 hour irrevocable, but they also had a statement saying that the seller, uh, the, the realtor the will not be disclosing offers um, to anyone as they come in. So if you wanna submit, you submit, and it was kind of vague. I'm like, okay, well, what, what exactly are they doing? Like, I just, I didn't understand. So I'm like, do you have any offers at that time? She's like, no. So the next day we finally decide that we're going to submit this is after three days on market. I'm kind of like, why are they, it's, they got a 24 hour revocable, but they haven't notified anyone if they have any offers yet, they got no offers and they had this tight schedule, but then they opened it up because there were so many people calling. So we're like, okay, let's get in there. So we get in. We submit an offer and we submit an offer at, uh, you know, because we thought at this time that we were the only people submitting. We couldn't believe it. We didn't understand it. Yeah. So we submit at 500. So we have an offer at 500 and then we have another one at their top, which is standard for a multiple offer scenario. If you don't know, if no one else has submitted an offer, what your strategy generally is, is that you submit at list price just in case no one else happens to submit, right? And then the seller can negotiate with you further if, if they decide to after that. Mm -hmm. So we submit and the agent gets back to us going like, well, you know, maybe you guys should look at your comps, uh, 500, eh, this and that. And I'm like, I'm like, in my mind, I'm going, well, maybe you should list the property accordingly. I'm like, of course we're going to do that if there's no other offer. She's like, we have five offers. And then I'm like, well, what do you mean? She goes, well, the way that this is structured, I don't have to disclose ahead of time to anyone how many offers I have. And I'm like, okay. So I get that. And then I'm like, so what's the process here? She goes, well, as offers come in, I will let the agents know how many we have. And then some offers will expire in their 24 hours if the seller doesn't like it until we find an offer. This is a Rolodex? We like, that we like. And I'm like, okay, well, this is brutal for everyone. Like in my mind, I'm like, so this agent not only has to uh, explain to all the agents and everyone what's happening because most people have never been through anything like this and you know then she's dealing with the seller who's in a, in a situation which is where they're unwell and they have to just deal with this process instead of just getting it done so what happens we resubmit there's seven offers as they're expired they just they just let the offers expire then they send a form saying like Thank you. Your offer has expired. Please resubmit if you want to. And by the way, maybe you should check your comparatives, comparables in the market to uh, check yourself on the price again, basically. And we're, I'm like, okay, so this is like just a complete disaster for everyone. <laughs> bad for, bad for the, the listing agent, bad for buyer agents, bad for buyers, bad for the seller. In my perspective, you know, whatever they're doing it, that's, that's fine. Anyways. So I guess over the course of this four days, there was probably about, I'm going to, I'm going to guess there was about 10 offers in total, all of which expired, relisted at 150,000 over the as, as, original asking price. And now it's just sitting. That's amazing. I'm, I love that it's still sitting and that, that yeah. agent completely shot themselves in the foot. They've took the adjectives um, out there. Well, dude, cause it's like, who's agent? Gonna, she had like 10 good buyers and now zero buyers. Uh, has that agent ever sold? Like, cause you can look up on the back end, like 
does has this agent ever sold a property in their life? Dude, yes. And the thing is, there's we looked at the last sale she did, and it seems like she may have structured it the same way. So terribly. It's it, it seems and like hey like listen I have no you know everybody has their way of doing thing and this is her their way of doing thing and that's and that's fine it's just like it just seemed like uh it seemed like a lot now are you going back and are you going and putting your offer back in at five hundred sorry are you going and back in your put your offer back in at five hundred now that it's sitting I mean you know it just seems to me like it could have been done and she could yeah. they could have had a great price for the property like they would yeah. have I'm guaranteed they would have had at least five to ten offers on offer day uh and it probably would have shot the price up to exactly where they are now they may have got it because the house is worth it but now they've you know you've got these solid buyers who are no longer interested just because of that style. everyone off yeah wow that's pretty, uh, that's so pretty that's, funny. that's a new thing. So to anyone listening out there that, you know, you're talking about strange things or, uh, you know, however, you know, many people have comments about multiple offers in different scenarios. This is one that, uh, I, I don't think benefits anyone. So, I mean, I'll say it's stupid structure <laughs> coming to my mouth, not yours. Thanks, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Thanks for listening guys. Yeah. I, I share that one. That was wild. Yeah, Greg calls me. I'm driving. He's like, uh, I don't know what's happening, but there's this beautiful home, well under value, no offers. We're about to fire. I'm like, okay, sounds yeah, yeah, good. And then he calls back. Client. I'm like, did you get it? He's like, no, there was five other offers. I'm like, what? <laughs> so I didn't even understand what was happening. It was very, very wild. It was back. Yeah. Um, it's a yeah, very well, similar transaction structurally to something that they used to do with algorithmic trading. Right. Oh, like let's bring in Matt. Hall. Welcome, Matt. Yeah, Welcome, Matt. Welcome, Matt. Hey, guys. I thought I'd lay it on Matt for a second. That's so awesome. they used to do That's these awesome. hide and slide orders, right? Like they they would they would run the algos. They probably still do it, but they put some speed bumps in the exchanges. But the idea is you would ping a bunch of orders, and it would kind of set a price for you, right? Like you get feedback on what people were willing to take. Right. Like it's not exactly the same idea, but it seems pretty similar. Um, for perspective, the stock exchanges put what they call a speed bump in there to stop that from happening to a certain degree. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not an algorithmic trader, but you know, when, when you get a smarter trap, you get a, or a smarter mouse trap, you generally get a smarter mouse. So they probably since figured it out, but Interesting. it's, it's we, actually let's like, let's introduce <laughs> Matt so he can, uh, <laughs> Matt, Matt's just our, uh, he's just our, uh, he's just keeps numbers in the back. So whenever we have questions, he pops in and <clears throat> corrects us. That no, Matthew Hall is a, uh, he's actually a partner with, uh, <laughs> exponent, uh, Exponent Financial Management? Is that the... Investment Management. Investment Management, excuse me. Uh, so we wanted to bring Matt on to discuss the uh, federal budget, which uh, was released last week, and uh, mixed emotions, obviously, on both sides of the uh, political spectrum. But uh, we figured Matt would be, you know, just right down the middle, give us all the Coles notes, and uh, <laughs> be nonpartisan. So, uh, so yeah, Matt, welcome to the show. Maybe if you want to just kind of better introduce yourself. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'll do my very best to be nonpartisan. Um, my name is Matthew Hall. I'm a partner at Exponent Investment Management. Uh, we're a high net worth money management firm. Uh, we specialize in financial planning. Uh, we do some insurance, um, those types of things generally for high net worth individuals. So we do read through the budget um, every year and generally attend a whole bunch of continuing ed stuff on it uh, just to make sure we're, you know, effectively applying the rules well for our clients and maybe uh, doing things to their advantage based on this, you know, the structure set out in the budget every year. 
Um, as it relates to real estate, though, uh, it's probably not as significant a budget as last year, I would think. I don't know how you guys feel about it, but like last year had the first time home saver account in it. It had the, the foreign buyer rules, um, substantial investment in growing housing stock. This year's got some stuff, um, but I, I don't think as much. I mean, a lot of like a lot, if you read through it, a lot of it touts the fact that the home first time home saver account is coming out in May, <laughs> which it isn't. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, just, I mean, you led the show off by saying that isn't happening and it'll be end of this year. <laughs> well, I mean, they put this is, I mean, this is, this is pretty par for the course, right? The government sets the budget and then the financial institutions are like, well, what? we got to figure out how to actually do this. Yeah. Um, so I know at least the custodians I work with, namely National Bank and Credential, they're working really hard to get it done within a reasonable time period. Um, I'm hoping they get it done close to, um, but like I said, it's it's kind of one of those things the government says, and then everyone's got to jump and, and get it done, right? Um, from the perspective of, you know, is it a good idea? Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm. In fact, for people, like, for a lot of people, I think it probably is a better solution than the home buyer plan. But given the price of real estate, even, even if it's come off a little bit, I suspect people, particularly in higher income tax brackets, are going to want to use both if they can. Mm -hmm. So what what do you see uh, out of that um, out of this year's budget? You know, at the outset of the show, we talked about the uh, first time first home uh, savings plan, like we were just talking about. Technically supposed to launch two days ago. No bank has it, uh, but is a really good program. Foreign buyer ban was last year. They made some amendments to it. Uh, some good amendments this past week as well. But with the new budget that just came out, Matt, what did you? What are some of the highlights, whether it pertains to real estate or not, um, that kind of jumped out to you? Um, a lot of it seems to be around consumer protection. Uh, they, like, they haven't actually given specifics as far as I can tell, but there's, you know, code of conduct to protect, protect Canadians within, in, in, in existing mortgages, which seems to be, um, kind of a thing for them. Um, you know, some things on bidding, I would think would probably be part of that, uh, sort of ties into what you just said. Not... A ton there. Uh, again, in comparison to last year, I would think mm -hmm. the language is pretty strong, though. Um, like it actually says something along the lines of, or maybe I can even find the direct quote here. Um, like it effectively says that the, the the government does not consider housing a financial asset, right? Mm -hmm. Which is pretty strong language when you think about it, right? Like they're they're looking at it from the like almost a, a total social utility perspective. Like people need places to live versus this is you know a place someone lives and also a financial investment. Um, the language is such, and again, I'm kind of loath to interpret language because that's kind of subjective, but it does seem that they're looking at larger landlords, not necessarily even corporations, even individuals who own significant amounts of rental properties. Um, and they're basically kind of warning people, say like, you know, do good kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like if we catch you doing excessive rent evictions, that sort of stuff, you know, we're going to turn our eye on you and you don't want that. It feels a bit like a warning shot in that respect. Um, I don't think it's going to apply to a lot of people. Like if you're genuinely, genuinely in the business of, you know, renting and you're not doing anything sketchy, I don't think you're going to have to worry about it. But they kind of, like I said, the, the you know, a bill of homeowners rights is getting bandied about where it makes inspection mandatory, that sort of stuff. Like, again, there's things in here, uh, but I don't think it's as, as significant as the last budget. Um, <laughs> you know, in terms of, a potential negative. Um, a lot of a lot of talk around this particular budget is surrounding uh, taxing wealthier individuals. 
um, some of which, of course, would be major landlords. Um, so they what they've done, they haven't they haven't changed the regular capital gains inclusion rate, so it's still fifty percent um, for most people. Uh, and but what I mean by most people is, um, if you are a sort of higher net worth individual in Canada and you derive a lot of your income in any given year from things like you know flow through entities, lifetime capital gains exemption, capital gains in general, dividends, you affect your accountant or you effectively have to run two tax calculations. Um, you run the regular one and then you run what's called uh, alternative minimum tax or AMT, right? And the rule is you pay the higher of the two, right? Uh, so some of the most significant changes tax-wise in this year's budget affect AMT. Uh, and where I could see that sort of tying into real estate potentially is um, obviously if you sell a property that's not your principal residence, it is a capital gain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so depending on how much capital gains you're earning in any given year, if you are subject to the AMT calculation, you're now going to high- pay a higher effective rate of tax uh, in so much that it was about 15%. Now it's somewhere in the 20s. Um, this is definitely the part of the show where I say I am not an accountant, <laughs> and uh, this is my interpretation of the budget. And if you have any specific accounting questions, I urge you to ca- to contact one. Um, Thank you, Matt. That's where I can sort of see it being an issue. Probably not for most people. Um, while they did raise the actual rate of tax on AMT, and they're going to increase the inclusion rates on cap, or sorry, reduce the inclusion rates on capital gains. So you're going to have to pay more of capital gain if you get stuck under the AMT calc. Um, that said, though, they raised the, they raised the basic personal amount from 40000 I'm not even sure if that's changed since 1986 when this sort of began to exist. But now it's, I think, 173. Um, so you, pre- you probably have to sell a property with a fairly significant capital gain or several properties that in aggregate mm-hmm. um, had substantial capital gain to get caught up. And again, this is just my understanding of it. Um, you know, I could be way off base here, but I know AMT does affect capital gains and they really rejigged AMT a fair bit. Uh, it's set up so, uh, as far as I understand, people in the like in the really top tax brackets, like million plus, are probably going to um, uh, shoulder most of the bourbon or burden here. Sorry. <laughs> bourbon. <laughs> Speaking uh, of which, yeah. they might be having some bourbon segue. now. Um, <laughs> The rest is probably people 300,000 and up. So it's probably not going to affect um, most real estate investors, I would say, unless there's a large capital gain or a series of capital gains that add up to a significant amount. You can carry AMT forward and offset it in other years. Uh, again, I don't know the exact mechanics of that. I'm not an accountant. Um, you know, that I could see potentially being an issue for some people. Uh, in terms of sort of second derivative and third derivative stuff, too. Um, they're going to start to tax, uh, the portfolios of financial institutions. So there was a mechanism such that if a, if a big bank held like a stock portfolio and got dividends from Canadian companies, there was some significant tax relief there. It appears they're taking that away, um, which theoretically means less cash flow for banks, um, potentially meaning they can lend less. Uh, I seriously doubt that though. Um, I'm sure they'll find a way to get around that, but that was sort of the only other thing I, I thought of that might have an effect. Would that, um, but like would I that said, drive interest rates though? Would that Pardon? would that drive would that not drive uh, interest rates either on borrowing costs or like or or on our investment fees, like increasing them to make up that cash flow to make up that loss? 
Well, I mean, I mean, banks are publicly traded companies, so it's a, it's a good point, Dave, right? Like they're under a lot of pressure. Their management teams are under a lot of pressure to continue and grow to pay dividends to the shareholders and have this, the share price go up. Mm-hmm. Um, if they have less cash kicking around, they can do less stuff. I mean, that's true of any business, right? Um, so if they're losing more, if they're losing more of their revenue to taxes than they were before, you know, that it's an issue in that sense, right? Like if you have less, like, just like you or I, right? Like if we have less money, there's less stuff we can do, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> right? Um, I mean, how much less money it's going to be? I mean, we, I'd have to look through the financial statements of, you know, I like we do do that, but I haven't looked in, in like in that lens lately. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely something we are going to do though, to see how it affects, you know, maybe aggregate profitability. I wouldn't think a ton. Yeah. Um, I mean, it could be right. Um, might even vary bank to bank, frankly. Um, that said though, the, you know, a lot of like the a principal source of revenue for Canadian banks is the net interest margin. Right. So, I mean, lending is still going to be a priority there. Um, it could make them more selective. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, I, I would argue, I mean, Dave, you're, you're a mortgage broker policy over you, right? Like, you know, major Canadian banks have arguably been a lot more selective in who they were willing to lend to over the past couple of years in general, I would say, uh, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong there. No, no, absolutely. But I mean, you could see, I could see a I could see a circumstance where they become even more so. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and that, you know, frankly, they probably already are just because of the, the, the economic climate we're in, in general. Right. And, Definitely. And speaking of economic climate that we're in, Matt, and this kind of doesn't, <clears throat> this pertains a little bit to the budget being that they're, you know, planning on new spending of, you know, I think 40 billion plus, um, obviously a lot of stimulus back into the economy, uh, running that deficit, um, with everything that's gone on with the banking in the U S and, and over in, you know, uh, abroad as well, and kind of where the market's headed with the bonds being down a little bit, how do you foresee kind of the, um, rest of the year playing out from, <clears throat> from, you know, from a bank of Canada, uh, standpoint and and where they're you know kind of what you're seeing or or thinking that they might be at from a an overnight lending rate which affects bank prime uh, to the bond market that adjusts or affects fixed rates uh, what you know obviously there's been a lot of change in the last few weeks and it's you know there's no crystal ball and it's really hard to predict but what are you kind of hearing around the water cooler in that regard so there's kind of two camps as far as I can tell um, there's one who there's one that think the sort of banking crisis is effectively largely behind us, uh, at least in the U.S., solely from the standpoint that the, you know, the, the powers that be, be it the, the Federal Reserve or the FDIC, is effectively going to guarantee bank deposits, mm-hmm. right? Um, <laughs> could be a double-edged sword there, right? Um, you know, there's not like, if a, if a banker thinks that he's completely covered on one end, what, what type of risk does it make them take or incent mm-hmm. them to take, Right. So there could be a long-term issue there in terms of, you know, I don't, I don't want to use the word excessive risk-taking, but if you know your deposits are going to be insured potentially beyond the FDIC limit, right? Certainly something- And with house money. Right. Um, exactly how that's going to look, because it, like, as far as I know, this, this guarantee was, you know, extended specifically to the issues we were having, namely Silicon Valley, Century Bank, Um but, you know, it can be interpreted as a signal, like, you know, there's terms called like the Yellen blanket, right, was bandied about a little bit, right? Um, so the thought, the school of thought there is if we're through the banking crisis, but it slows the pace of in- interest rate increases, um, that could potentially be a bit of a tailwind for the market. Now, why would it do that? Um, because these particular bank runs, 
in, in again, in my opinion, they're not like they, they differ from 2008, 2009 is it's not that they were the, the banks were purchasing like esoteric, you know, inherently risky securities for the bank's sort of house portfolio. That's not what was going on here. This is actually a kind of an old, boring bank run, um, if there is such a thing, uh, in so much that it was an asset liability mismatch, right? Like when you're a deposit taking institution, you you know, it's a demand deposit, right? If your clients come in, you're supposed to give them their money back, right? Um, but, you know, the way the reserve requirements work is you're lending it, like you don't have that much cash on hand necessarily, right? And then some of it, either by management decision or by legal mandate, depending on where you are in the world, has to be invested in some sort of low risk portfolio, right? Um, so Silicon Valley Bank, for example, had a substantive amount, can't remember exactly how much, in government, like, like treasury bonds, right? Problem is, if you had those bonds before 2021, interest rates skyrocketed and the value of that bond portfolio went down substantively, which is generally fine, right? Because if you hold those bonds to maturity, you're going to get your money back, right? Problem is, if you have a bank run between then and now, you got to start selling that portfolio at a loss, right? Um, and again, my understanding is late, is late uh, I can't remember what month, but apparently Silicon Valley did reach out to Goldman Sachs for like a consulting engagement. Um, and part of the, I guess, part of the takeaway there was, you know, sell your portfolio or some of the portfolio and then um, issue new shares. And that's what panicked uh, investor or, or deposit holders in that bank, right? Mm. Is the equity, like the, that they were issuing new shares, apparently. Um, it's tough to say, right? There's a lot of psychology written on bank runs. Um, like a lot. Um, but the interesting thing I think about Silicon Valley Bank that maybe separates it from, you know, maybe even other regional banks, but certainly the large national ones in the U.S., is the makeup of the deposit holder. Uh, so a substantial amount of deposit holders at Silicon Valley Bank were far in excess of the $250,000 FDIC coverage. Um, again, I can't remember off the top of my head the exact number, but it was substantially more than a lot of other banks would have been, mm. right? Um, cause if you have a broader deposit base that is, you know, percentage wise more insured, if you will, from the FDIC coverage, you're less risky, right? Mm -hmm. Um, which kind of makes sense, right? Cause SVB in particular catered to a very particular type of clientele, right? Yeah. A lot of venture cap, uh, a lot of tech stuff in a particular region too, right? Like, you know, they're, you know, largely based in, in California and they have had a substantial operation on the East coast, I think Boston area. Um, Century Bank, uh, rumored to bank a lot of the hedge funds. Um, so probably similar idea. Um, a lot of, you know, I, I think, you know, regional banks in the U.S., kind of a different issue. Canada, different situation, I would say, uh, in so much that we don't really have regional banks the way the, U the U.S. does. Like our mm. system is dominated by, you know, call it six major Schedule <laughs> One banks. And Right. I guess I guess you could kind of parlay a re or kind of equate a regional bank in the U.S. to like a credit union here, right? It would be kind of locally focused. Um, in well, a, in yeah, a sense. probably, but much smaller, right? I yeah. mean, regional bank is is and the term like I I think the technical term is is strategically important bank and SIB. Uh, and SIB is designated as far as I know. There's probably more criteria than this, right? But you know, a, a deposit taking institution with 250 billion and less in assets, hmm. that's a lot in Canada. Yeah. <laughs> right. You're you're um, you're, you're top US, eight at that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, 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 in the U.S., there's probably quite a few regional banks that are just below that threshold, right? Mm -hmm. uh, solely because you know, again, different population makeup, substantively larger population in the U.S. than in Canada. Um, our banking system, <laughs> you know, sometimes it, it's often knocked as being anti-competitive. Uh, strong argument there, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, 
but I guess the trade-off sometimes for a non-competitive system um, is a safer one. Uh, at least that's what's sort of being trumpeted by the powers that be in Canada. Um, I think, you know, our, we have six banks that are effectively like the behemoths in, in the U.S., like JP Morgan, or like our versions of it, obviously much smaller, like JP Morgan, Bank of America. 0809 basically showed that those institutions were too big to fail in the, mm. in the, in the mind of the U.S. government, I think. Um, again, subjective, but that's my take on it. Um, and I would suggest that any single one of the big six Canadian banks is as strategically important to Canada. Um, you know, mm -hmm. could they be let to fail? I mean, that's a government decision at the time, but, uh, you know, my sense is no, they wouldn't be allowed to fail. And, and so with that stability, with that stability then of that, of the big six, like you said, and kind of being that, um, you know, strategically important to the, to the economy, how do you then see, <clears throat> you know, kind of parlaying it back to like the, the rates and bond market and kind of where things are headed this year, you know, kind of that stability kind of would likely probably into more of a stable bond market or or interest rates from the bank of canada holding level over the coming year then and is it are you still thinking that you know the talk at the end of last year was that it was going to maintain steady might see a quarter point increase this year but you know probably going to maintain steady and then start to at tail end of 2023 or q1 of 2024 start tailing off is that still even with you know kind of everything that happened in the us and showing the stability in canada for the banking sector still the thought of um of kind of where bonds will will maintain or the bank of canada for some yeah i mean you know at our firm we kind of you know before i said i would say the year started we'd actually thinking we were thinking somewhere in the neighborhood of a one percent increase throughout the year um mm -hmm. and then sort of interest rates tailing off you know mid to end of 2024 was our guess um that said the bank of canada and it's very worth noting here um, the Bank of Canada did move rates a fair bit faster than its U.S. equivalent, right? Mm -hmm. um, so prior to this banking crisis, um, the Bank of Canada had already paused at their last rate meeting, right? They did not increase. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, and, and, and you know, all of this is inflation dependent. Um, inflation is coming off, but it's not where they want it to be. Um, but that said, any monetary policy devices, it's tricky, right? It's I think it's worth remembering that it's not like a surgical instrument, like a scalpel within like an immediate feedback loop, right? Like you increase mm -hmm. the rate and then immediately inflation starts to come off, right? Um, typically it takes, you know, 12 to 18 months for those sorts of things to trickle through the economy, right? Uh, I think we're closer to the end of rate increases than we are to the beginning, certainly. Uh, I think we are seeing some positive news on the inflation front, but it is proving stickier than anyone thought. That said, I mean, we really started the rate increases in March and it's April. Right. So, you know, if it does take on average 12 to 18 months, we should start to be seeing the effects of of, of the in increases that have already happened. And I think we are. Um, but it's difficult to do this. Right. Mm -hmm. um, because it's not an immediate feedback loop. You know, I don't envy, you know, I know I know central bankers are much maligned and I don't envy their job at this stage mm -hmm. uh, to try and stick this landing is not going to be an easy thing. Um, you know, could they overshoot? Yeah, uh, I think they could. And, you know, I think it's tough to, like I said, it's tough to do this perfectly, man. Like I'm not, yeah. I'm, I'm super glad I'm not a central banker. My hat's off to them, quite frankly. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's. But they, like I said, they've already paused. Um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, and, you know, you and I, you guys and I have discussed this. Like one of the interesting things to monitor is the discount to prime on variable. 
right? Mm -hmm. Like you sort of get a sense as to what banks think are going to happen by how big a discount they give um, on their five-year variable rate. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because obviously the bigger discount they give, the more they're incenting people to take the variable. Yeah, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, from, a, from an asset li liability standpoint, variable mortgages tend to match um like you don't have to forecast interest rates as as, as much right because you're going to get at least elite on, on adjustable rate mortgages you're going to get the lift all the way up um and even then even even on a traditional firm right like you don't you know payment's not going to change until you hit the trigger rate but the bank is going to be collecting progressively more interest of that existing payment right um so i don't know what the spread is on variable um my inclination is you know it's not much yeah well i mean if you think about like you know Back a couple of years ago, I mean, even when, you know, we last all, you know, we did that thing at referral over at the Brook Street, the, right? Um, like, you know, where you're seeing like 1%, yeah, right? In excess of one was the discount, right? Um, so that's a pretty big tightening when you think about it, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's also the psychological, like, you know, while a bank probably from an asset liability standpoint would probably prefer more people to take variable mortgages, I think it's worth noting there's going to be some investor psychology here at play, I would think, for a while, Right. Um, and by that, I mean, like, there's probably a lot of people who took variable mortgages who feel pretty burned by them. Mm -hmm. Um, and that might affect their propensity, even with, you know, a regular, you know, what would be considered a regularly large spread or discount, um, take them again. Mm -hmm. Right. No, no, that's great. <clears throat> well, we, uh, we really appreciate you coming on and kind of, uh, doing a little bit of a, uh, high level. I know. <laughs> Some so it's all all it's all opinion at the moment man like yeah you know you're so you're even seeing like noted economists um i think krugman was saying he was you know the data was contradictory and stuff like mm -hmm. that um i don't think i think you know any kind of stability would be helpful here right mm -hmm. um you know i think you could see a pretty good year for most asset classes not exceptional but reasonable by historical average, so long as we could get some clarity on interest rates. Like, and, and by that, I mean some stability, right? Like, it's really hard to shop for a house if you don't know how much that house is going to cost you when the deal closes, you know, depending on how far out it is, right? Mm -hmm. um, do you have a little bit more sense of, you know, okay, you know, rates might go up, by, but not by that much more. If that's the general per pervasive feeling among buyers and sellers, you might see a little bit more stuff going on and it sounds like you know from you know tuning in earlier with what you guys were saying in terms of you know multiple bids and stuff like that that maybe that's starting to happen a little bit um yeah. the, the average person is saying like look like you know no one can high point or low point interest rates generally speaking you know if i get close i'm okay right yeah i think we've we've definitely seen that uh and we've talked about it before of um people being more comfortable with where rates are at now on the fixed, at least, um, you know, variable with any sort of pause, like we had from the Bank of Canada on the last uh, announcement, kind of gave a little bit of confidence. And and you know, if we get another pause again this month, we'll add to that even more so. But uh, I know Paul and I, in our conversation with clients uh, on the fixed side, that they're like, you know, what the rates are, what they are. I can, you know, this my payments are what they are. I'm comfortable. Let's do a shorter term, you know, maybe in that two or three year term instead, uh, and reevaluate then. But uh, but we've certainly seen a lift, and I know Greg has as well. And we've kind of we talked about in the previous episode of kind of that uh, month over month tracking of the average home price and seeing that kind of bottom out and and pick back up, which obviously uh, shows you that people are comfortable with everything. But 
Um, really appreciate you coming on. I know we got to uh, wrap it up. I think Greg's uh, Greg's short on time right now, so we'll. Uh, I think we'll ten o'clock. Yeah, ten o'clock is ten o'clock. Yeah, yeah. Hey, thanks a lot. That was <laughs> yeah. like a lot of information, man. That was that was great. Well, I know a bit a bit subjective for, for sure, but thanks for having me on, guys. No, no. Yeah. Thanks, we'll, uh, we'll slide into the mood boost here with. Uh, yeah. You got to take away Paul. Mood boosts. Yeah, next time, uh, next time we have Matt on, we'll make sure we we segment a two-hour uh, episode so we can get through all of the uh, different uh, categories. Yeah. Uh, no one okay, wants so to I... listen to me talk for two hours. <laughs> I would. Uh, so I got four today. Uh, number one, uh, I've started telling everyone about the benefits of eating dried grapes. It's all about raising awareness. Mm. Oh. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, number two, this one will be for Matt. I've started investing in stocks, uh, beef, vegetable, chicken. One day I hope to be a billionaire. Mm. <laughs> um, number three, I was walking in the jungle, saw a lizard on his hind legs telling jokes. Turned to a local tribal leader and said, that lizard's really funny. And he said, that's not a lizard. He's a stand-up chameleon. <laughs> That was and, wild. That one went on. And last but not least, <laughs> um, six actually I got two more. I'll say them really quick. Six cows were smoking joints and playing poker. That's right. The stakes were pretty high. <laughs> uh, and last but not least, my friend Jack says he can communicate with vegetables. That's right. Jack and the beans talk. Oh, wow. Yeah, these are from my aunts. Everyone's sliding boosts in my uh, inbox. Well, those were pretty so. good. Those were all pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks again to Matt, Matt Hall, Matthew, Matthew Hall uh, from Matthew. Exponent. And uh, this uh, show will be released by the time you're listening to this. You will already obviously have it. Um, but shows are released every Tuesday at 10 a.m. on uh, YouTube and all of our streaming platforms wherever you listen to your podcasts. And uh, we'll be back next week. Gentlemen, I have to say it's very nice for everyone to be back in their back in their settings. Greg's leaving. We'll see you next week. <laughs> All right, see you. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please remember to like, share, comment, and subscribe because we'd really like that.